Hello and welcome to another exciting and, you guessed it, jam-packed episode of Modern Day Philosophers. I'm going to keep it brief. I'm at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. I've been performing here all month. Tomorrow's my last day. I'll talk to you about it more in another episode, but it's been ups and downs and tons of work and excitement and, whew, what an experience. I'm still in it, but I'll talk to you more about it next episode. In the meantime, today's episode is a little different than you're used to. Usually we have people on who are like a major success or a star. Today's episode is Stephen Allen Green, whose story at this point in life could probably be described as tragic, though I like to believe that it will one day be the story of an underdog who overcame everything and made it to the big time. Stephen Allen Green had an experience with the now late Jerry Lewis, which I think will serve as a weird tribute to him this episode. I was always a big fan of Jerry Lewis, loved him, but this story paints him very differently, and uh, you'll take it as it hits you, I guess. Today's episode is brought to you by Stand Up Records, and here's a quick word from them. Warning. Last year, over 40,000 Americans died in car-related accidents. Not a pleasant thought, is it? In fact, as thoughts go, it's downright depressing. Well, that's where we can help cheer you up. We're StandUpRecords.com, and we offer the finest in CDs, DVDs, downloads, and merchandise from the best comedians on Earth. Artists like Mark Marin, Maria Bamford, Eddie Pepitone, and Doug Stanhope. Available at fine record stores, Amazon.com, and the iTunes Music Store. That's StandUpRecords.com. Come on, listen to us while you're driving. Live dangerously. Stand Up Records, the brand you know, the brand you love. And, of course, my new album is out on Stand Up Records, The Nicest Boy in Barcelona, available on iTunes and Amazon and StandUpRecords.com, wherever you get comedy albums, as long as it's one of those three places. Pick up my new album, The Nicest Boy in Barcelona. And now, without further ado, except for the intro song, my talk with Stephen Allen Green. Enjoy. Welcome to Modern Day Philosophers. Modern Day Philosophers. Having failed to pay attention in school, Danny Lobel, now older and wiser, will attempt to learn basic philosophy 101. Our young hero will be joined by today's top comedians, philosophers all their own. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Danny Lobel. Modern Day Philosophers. I'm here with Stephen Allen Green. How you doing? Hey, I'm good. How are you? Thank you for having me. Uh, thanks for being here. Well, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on this show is because you've been at it for a very long time, and you've had a lot of ups and downs. It's almost inspiring to see somebody who's been through the toils that you've been through and continues to go forward with comedy. And I wanted to kind of get into your brain and hear about what motivates you and what drives you. Uh, when I was a kid... My uh, parents, both creative types, my mother an actress who was offered a studio contract, and my father a comedy writer who went into business, um, uh, they, they fought a lot, and there was disappearing acts, and there was all kinds of stuff. And uh, the best way I could deal with it at the time uh, was to see it see something is funny if i can see it's like being in the desert and you're looking for water it was a coping mechanism coping mechanism and uh shooting forward 50 years or so to this current era of stephen allen green i had something that happened to me uh it did that 
changed my life forever. And I went through a scenario where I never wanted another comedian to go through what I went through. And that's why I decided, you know, for the Laughter Foundation, to start the Laughter Foundation. In terms of comedy, in terms of, you know, being 60 and coming back to the comedy store and, you know, my name's on the wall. That's a big thing to these young comics. You know, my picture's in the main room and a special exhibition with Troy Conrad's wonderful work. Um, and I do the roast battle, but I don't call in for spots. I just don't. Um, and so, so people don't understand this yeah. is all stuff about the comedy store in Los Angeles that he's talking right. about, which is a very prestigious place to be. Yeah. But you say you came back to it, so you were away from it for a long time? Is well, that I, that's that's the thing, is that I've been living a par I lived a parallel life. So I moved to London, England 20 years ago. And although I was at the comedy store and I toured Canada and I had some various and you know gigs throughout America too, um, it wasn't until I hit London that I became what I would call satisfactorily successful. In other words, working the best clubs, working great clubs, having mm -hmm. them call me, having the best, biggest management company, being on television six times, being employed by the BBC, starring in small movies, hosting Comedy Central UK for a weekend for South Park. So you hit the big time. I, but over there, it felt like it compared to the struggles here. And when you moved to the UK, was your career pretty good here as well? No, no. I mean, I... I used to joke when they used to uh, ask me in England, why did you come, why'd you come over here, mate? Why are you here? And I'd always say, because I killed an audience in America, <laughs> which ironically would have meant that I, I did well. But mm -hmm. um, I did well, you know? I mean, it was always, I have a, you know, an off, you know, Malcolm Hay, who wrote for Time Out, very astute uh, comedy critic. Uh, you know, I mean, the you know, comedy over there has taken very, much more intellectually. Uh, and uh, Malcolm's a very, very well-renowned writer who wrote the comedy section of Time Out magazine. And he labels all the comedians, you know, mm -hmm. and I was offbeat. I was called offbeat, which is... That's a, that's a big compliment out there, it's offbeat. A, it's a compliment. You don't want to be on beat, especially no, no. <laughs> as a comedian. <laughs> I think he's talking more like stylistically. But if you're offbeat, if you're a comedian, you're already offbeat. If you're offbeat of the offbeat, then you're special. I, I know. I was always a comic's favorite, especially when I was doing my farewell performances. You know about that. No, no but mm. but before we get to that, yeah. I, want to, I want to backtrack. So you talked about... A few things that were interesting to me. Your dad was a comedy writer that went into business? He was more of a businessman who wanted to be a comedy writer. He wrote jokes for Xavier Cugat, who was an orchestra leader at the time, who was famously married to Charo Cuchicuchi. Mm -hmm. And my dad had a <laughs> cellar club he sold to Alan King and was neighbors What's a with, cellar club? It's, you know, uh, in a cellar. You know, not a cellar with a C. So it's like a basement club for, you know, kids. Probably booze and a little bit of gambling. So are you an only child? Uh, no, I'm the only one of us three that's still a child. Um, <laughs> I have an older brother and an older sister. And we're all, yes, we're all three in the business of show. Really? Me, your resume. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So what are you, in what, what capacity I? are your brother and sister involved? Uh, my brother, um is uh, a well-known voice actor and a filmmaker and a conceptualist. Mm -hmm. um, he's got ideas that are businesses and um, 
he kind of does these things to reflect the culture. Um, and my sister is an actress, a serious actress. And ironically, she's the funniest one, in my opinion, in the family mm -hmm. since uh, my mother's passing. Um, but um, even then, I think she was funny. Uh, but she's a serious actress and is studying under some very serious people. So I guess they all kind of went into comedy to cope with your parents' no, marriage. Yeah, really. something like that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, but also because I grew up in Beverly Hills in the 60s when everybody was in showbiz. If you went to school at Beverly Vista, their parents were somebody or you were somebody. Hmm. That must have been pretty wild, being Beverly Hills in the 60s. The only black kid we had in the entire class. We was, had. We had, I know, <laughs> I know, that we owned. Okay. Uh, was Barry Gordy the fourth the son of the founder of Motown. Oh. Um, it just was very, it was very exclusive, rich. And, you know, it wasn't segregated. It just was a rich area. So did you grow up very wealthy then? We kind of, you ever see the movie Slums of Beverly Hills? I have. So we owned property, we rented property, but there was a lot of moving going on. And mm -hmm. I think the merit, the screwed up marriage had something to do with it, but mm -hmm. maybe, uh, you know, my father had, was an executive with this company and that company. What kind of woman was your mother? She was great. She um, uh, was the most generous and gregarious and funny and loving and courageous person I've ever known. How did that manifest itself? And Give me an example of how, how you you'd see that in your sure. childhood. How I saw it in my childhood was her trying to cope with not having any child support and no way to make a living. And yet I remember her having a broken leg and, you know, and I, I fixed a little string i was a kid so she could turn and turn off the light she would always talk about that and she basically worked for i think she worked for insurance companies at the time but she was still at night doing singing she had a wonderful voice um and uh you know she was either encountering executives who were putting a move on her mm -hmm. um or dealing with my father who was trying to take us away was she very attractive she was she was um a larger woman but she was, and she was beautifully attractive, and um, she was glorious, and her name was Gloria, and my father's name was Harold. Um, did she write her own songs? Uh, no, she did not. Um, she should have. Um, but she, uh, uh, she did record a couple. There's a song called "I Believe" that I have up on SoundCloud. I'll send you the. I'll send you the link later, man, when we're off the air. Yeah, so that was your, would you say it was your favorite of her songs that she'd do? Or? Gosh, I don't remember all of the songs she did, but um, I would say certainly when I was believing that I was producing the benefit for my foundation at the Hollywood Bowl, um, I was going to, and she had just passed, and I was going to definitely cut into scheduled time to uh, play that MP3 of her over the system. So you were a showbiz kid in a commercial and, 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 uh, and, and did you continue on with, with show business uh, when you left your parents' house? Was there a time you ever moved away from it or the whole time? I was always involved in the arts somehow or another. I mean, I, we, uh, there was the musical side. So my mother had a piano cause she sang. So she paid for piano lessons, which I did. And then I got into other instruments, including the drums, which my father bought for me. And I was in rock and roll. They drummer. were competing even with instruments. They were. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes. They were competing with instruments. And, um, 
but I was always the clown, but not the goofy clown. I was a bit a dark clown. I was the I was definitely a dark dark clown childhood clown clown child. So did you hold any jobs in between uh, being a child commercial actor and being a stand-up comic? You hold any jobs, any showbiz jobs, or any showbiz? any other jobs? Uh, oh, sure, absolutely. Well, um, my first job as a—I mean, I had a, some jobs as a kid, but my first job job was uh, making a dollar sixty-five an hour washing dishes, predominantly cookers, at Kentucky Fried Chicken, the one on Sunset, which is now something else. Mm -hmm. And uh, I worked in the service industry at uh, the dry cleaners, Holloway Dry Cleaners, which was a 24 hour, mm -hmm. it was like disco time and limos would pull up. Shh. I mean, Ray Gallman came in and picked up a red dress and handed me a share of his credit card. John Lennon used to come in, Chevy Chase, Jackson Brown, <laughs> wow, pretty... Bette Midler in tears. And then Ray Charles' entire 16 piece pink frilly shirt tuxedo orchestra. You did Lennon's dry cleaning. Yes, I believe I washed Yoko's knickers. <laughs> well, well, she wouldn't have been out here, right? If it was the years. No, it was the other uh, woman. It was May Pang. May Pang. May yeah. Pang. I may Pang, and I may not Pang. I haven't Did you decided meet him? yet. No, I didn't get to wait on him. Uh -huh. You know, but Elton John, I I held his check. <laughs> See, this is the thing. He paid. I remember it was fourteen dollars in a signed by Elton John or his manager or whatever. But uh -huh. It was definitely Elton John. And uh, of course, they didn't cash it. So I guess when you're rich like that, yeah. famous people, you can write, here's, a ch here's my check for $500. <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> right. And then I made the most money as an adult uh, uh, in the telemarketing business back in the 80s uh, when it was run by uh, Hungarians. <laughs> it was run by Hungarian. You know that the I don't know why that made me laugh. Well, shit. It did. Well, I mean, you know that the ballpoint pen apparently was invented by a Hungarian in 1947. I wouldn't have known that. Now you do. Okay. I forget who. And they were these sort of street hustling neo mafia mm -hmm. dudes that ran these phone rooms back in the 80s in Los Angeles where if you needed to make a quick buck you go in and you get on the phone and you call back east you use a pseudonym you give them a big story then you go hey uh, by the way I got a box of ballpoint pens sure that's still what they do with all the unemployed actors here is they put them on phones and I, I did it for a little while when I got out here it's it's a miserable thing to do yeah but were you I know but were, were you were, were you doing the commission or the uh I was making calls for um, Planned Parenthood. Did you work over at uh, on Wilshire at that place? Yeah. I worked there. Oh, yeah? What creeps. <laughs> oh, weird. man. Real creeps. <laughs> I remember raising for them like uh, 900 bucks and then, you know, walking away with 30 for myself. Oh, you got 30? That's yeah, I know. I don't want to brag. <laughs> you got, uh, I don't want to brag. You did brag. better than I did. Oh, those guys are creeps. I remember one of my first sales was like, uh, you know, this, this guy on the other end was like, I'm not making this up. It was, uh, well, I just buried my wife, but I'll give you $30. <laughs> I don't know why he had a British accent. It's just easier to do. But uh, yeah, I had fun there. Really? I, I didn't. I, I didn't. I had After fun a certain there. amount of phone calls, I started pretending the phone was a gun when I put it to my head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, they're horrible people. They're just stupid, yeah. basically. And, they're, and you know, look, they're, they are making a huge amount of money Mm -hmm. and how much money the uh, charities get is not what people think. And they harass people. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, people see people see the name of their company coming up on their phone. How many times people answer? It goes, would you, you know? Would you just leave us alone? Mm-hmm. But my, what, what the telemarketing office supplies that I was involved in uh, was much bigger ticket items. I mean, we're talking about one phone call could get me thousands of dollars. Wow. Yeah. You personally? Me personally. And I mean, there was like lots of Coke and people with brand new Corvettes or Mercedes. <laughs> and there was all- What were you selling? We were selling hope, Danny. <laughs> what the American public demands and what we delivered. <laughs> uh, basically, uh, office supplies, everything from pens and paper clips and- So and, that's how you know about the Hungarian ballpoint pen. Uh, yep. To, okay. There used to be a restaurant in Coenga called the Paprikash. And uh, they used to take us there to Paprikash. And, um, basically, here's here's this business. Here's what this business model was. Um, you Basically, you have a list of people mm-hmm. who purchased before or who never purchased. And you basically call them up. And these are businesses. And you go, uh, Danny, hey, how are you, Danny? It's, uh, it's uh, you know, Bob Jones. How you doing, Danny? Good, good. You, How good. you doing, Bob? Oh, Danny, let me tell you, I just got, I'm doing great. I just got word that our company is celebrating its 10th anniversary and we're becoming a publicly publicly held corporation in 30 days. Isn't that fantastic? That's amazing. Danny, without customers like you and your company itself to thank clients of ours for years, I'm telling you, we wouldn't be where we are. So I got to tell you, I'm just running to catch a plane, but... Uh, I just got back from Hong Kong where I was picking up some merchandise and they gave us a bunch of premiums and things that I just, I don't know what to do with. They're sitting on my desk. I got to go on vacation. Mm-hmm. I got a toaster oven. I got a can opener. I got a color television. Um, I got a microwave. <laughs> um, can, can I, I, you still at the same home address? <laughs> yeah, sure. Okay, great. Let me write that. Let me give you an insurance number. Okay, read that back to me. Okay, great. Uh, listen, Danny, my card will be in there. If you ever need anything, I got to run. You've been great. Enjoy the television when it gets out there. God bless you and everyone there. And people Danny. believe this crap? I'm not done. I haven't okay. gotten to the pitch. Sorry, yet. go on. I haven't even gotten to the pitch. <laughs> yeah, they did. And um, what I was, you know, and then, you know, oh, by the way, Danny, before I go, <laughs> I just noticed I got a half a case of the paper clips. It totals $3,500. Uh, I'll set it up on uh, 120 day billing and we'll worry about it when I get back. Make sure you give me a call when you get that microwave television. Yeah, I mean. And they say, yeah, sure, send me all those paper clips. Yeah. <laughs> Did you, mean, you didn't send them a TV, right? No, but, but I think about I think if you were a decent salesman, I mean, mm-hmm. like, in other words, if you were straight with the facts and if you. We're talking to the actual official purchasing agent. You can even get a purchase order number. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, then, you know, they would they would take the stuff because they'd use it. Right. I mean, it was this was stuff that they used. We just overloaded them and raised the price. Any TV? Did you send them a TV or anything like That's that? That's what the companies I worked for did. They did so, do that. Yeah. So basically, it was based on five percent of the order. So if the order was a thousand dollars, you'd have fifty dollars to go towards something. And then they get all these mm-hmm. gifts and premiums very cheap. And there could be a TV. I knew someone who sent a car once, wow. a Volkswagen car. Um, but you know, how I did that was a really holding my nose because I just, the truth was, is that I came out of this depression because of a suicide in the family. And Who's? my cousin and half brother, Larry, mm-hmm. at 25, um, jumped off the Park La Brea building. 
1973. And um, I went into a three-year depressive catatonia, basically, where I'd go to see a therapist on the Brea, and for the entire hour, I would just bawl my eyes out, and I had no idea why. Mm -hmm. And uh, what got me out of it was this pre-Reaganism money thing that make money at all costs. And what I was told what I was doing was legal. I kind of held my nose knowing that it wasn't completely moral. You know, you have to put your soul on pause, you know. That's what. That's exactly what happened. And I made a lot of money at it. And then it was like, okay, I feel like a total empty sleaze bag here. I don't want to do this anymore. And then I became a comedian. Mm-hmm. And, and it was the opposite. Because on the phone, I was pretending to be someone else. And then on stage at night at the comedy store... You were pretending uh, to be someone else. I was else. pretending to be someone else. <laughs> Always pretending to be someone else. That's funny. Who were uh, the big comics in, at the store when you were starting out? Well, uh, the big ones, well, there were a bunch that became big. I mean, we, you know, I was on many shows with Seinfeld and Bill Maher, and um, I knew Kinison quite well, and uh, I saw him struggle, and uh, mm-hmm. I was in, you know, I, I was hung around that group. I lived in the house, comedy store house with an unknown Andrew Dice Clay. Uh, but I was on, on, a, on, on any given week though. I mean, there was a time when, uh, you know, and I was one of the, one of the MCs. There was a time when unscheduled Richard Pryor, Robin Williams and Eddie Murphy, and then Rodney for a while, uh-huh. all at the same time. So I was MCing with a list of 25 comics about to bring Danny LaBelle on. We're already running 45 minutes late. Danny is coming up to me and saying, I go up to Danny, Danny, what do you you want me to say about you? What do you want for your intro? Mm -hmm. And then, okay, you're on. And then I'm standing now near the stage waiting for the comic to finish. And then Rodney comes in and you're bumped. And then you're bumped again and and again and again. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. Who are these guys did you buddy up with besides Kinnison? Well, buddy up with Kinnison. I mean, I was kind of, Kinnison decided to crash that house and was there a lot. And so was Carl LeBeau, who's a good guy, still working. Very funny. I like Love him a Carl lot, yeah. LeBeau. My shout out to my friend Carl LeBeau. He's one of the, he's the funniest physical comedian ever. He's in, terrific. Including he's funny. He's as funny as Jim Carrey is. I think LeBeau is funnier mm-hmm. physically. Uh I, I didn't really hang out with Sam. I mean, we we had, you know, it was part of that group having late night tight dinners and trying to figure things out. And he was also dating Tamayo Otsuki, who was a good friend of mine who I was engaged with. Uh-huh. He was dating her. Mitzi wanted me to marry Tamayo so she could stay in the country. She's Japanese. But I said no after a while because of my parents' divorce, but also because I didn't want to be known as Stephen Allen Green Card. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh but Sam's got me Sam and Carl got me my first headlining gig, which was at Sam's Brothers Club in Madison, which was fantastic. 85. Mm-hmm. What a time that was. Um, but I basically kind of operated like um, I did in grade school, hung out with the other nerds and losers. So uh, how long after this did you get married? It's 12 years. Okay. And how'd you meet her? We were on a gig in London. This was already when you'd moved? Yeah. So you meet this British girl at a gig, and then you did become Stephen Allen Green Card, I imagine. I beg your pardon. Well, uh, <laughs> we were on a show together, and uh, uh, she's brilliant, brilliant comedy writer, award-winning writer, and a brilliant actress. And Still at it? Yeah, mm-hmm. she is. She's concentrating mostly on writing now, and she also contributes to my podcast. Um, 
and has in the past in my new podcast. And uh, we work on writing together. Um, she's one of my collaborators. I like to collaborate with women. I'm collaborating with a few women now on the writing things. Uh, so, uh, you know, a lot of the stuff I do, I work with my wife on. So it's uh, similar. You're, you know what I mean? But you, I guess you ended amicably if your ex-wife is still helping you with your podcast and stuff, right? Yeah, we're great friends. We'll be lifelong friends. I mean, we still argue sometimes, which... Uh, Did your marriage play out like like your parents' marriage? Did you replicate it? You mean badly? Yeah. Uh, no. No, no. Were you very conscious of that the whole time? I don't want this to be another... Oh, well, I mean, I think, yeah, of course, uh, one thinks like that, I suppose, whether it's consciously or not subconsciously. But I think what what we were doing was dealing with the situation at hand. Mm-hmm. And um, we were in love. We were young. We were comedians. Got married in England? No, we got married at the Elvis Chapel in Las Vegas. <laughs> nice. And Elvis was thinner than me. He looked like Nick Cave. So you, you brought her over here. You got married in Las Vegas. Yeah. Well, we had been traveling back and forth. We were living in London, in Notting Hill. We had a place. And, oh, and very we, posh. Very posh. And um, uh, actually, Notting Hill is more crusty than posh. But, I mean, Mayfair is really posh. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, so it was posh enough. I know that Guy and Madonna bought property nearby. And my friend Bob Wade, who writes the Bond films with Neil Purvis, the mm-hmm. James Bond films, he we lived on the same road, St. Anne's Road. You're doing very well in London. You're you're a big success. You're working for the BBC. You're making well, let me, lots let of money. Let me clarify big success. For me, it was a big success. For me, having club owners call me and being represented by an actual working manager. And, sure. You know, all of that was real. Um, and, you know, all the shows were real. And the audiences were great. Um, but if you were to look at the numbers... Mm-hmm. You know, so I could go out and make two hundred, three hundred dollars in a gig, in you know, twenty minutes outside the house to great crowd, uh, and that gig would be like um, once or twice a week, yeah. you know. But it, you know, and I, but I made more money in voiceovers, and I had a commercial running, which didn't pay as much, but made money. So you basically you escaped America to an alternate reality, one where you found love, you found a career. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean i did no i did i mean from you know it's kind of like i mean probably if i look look at the numbers not that i want to focus on money but if we look at all the numbers that i spent on money to fly to london i mean i bought a home there and everything Mm -hmm. and then tally all the expenses of being there with the amount of money that i made is in showbiz it would be a ridiculous investment but I wanted to live in London regardless. It didn't matter. You were living your dream. You were getting some right. accolades and uh, and, yeah. you f- and you felt uh, appreciated. Not only that, Danny, but I got to, as we say in England, draw the line under it. In other words, I got a second chance. I had made some mistakes here in LA, big mistakes, burned huge bridges, <coughs> made, <coughs> got myself on several blacklists, I'm sure. Uh-huh. And uh, I, you know, I felt like all of those in my head, I would say most of them were misunderstandings gone bad and the others were me fanning the flames without realizing it. And Mm -hmm. I wanted to start again. I said, you know, let me start again. I had too much pressure on me. I had a father who was dying constantly like Fred Sanford and eventually did, who wanted me to make it before he died. 
And so that put double, triple, quadruple pressure on me to get into the improv when Mitzi was cutting the axe and, you know, made me a little more annoying to Bud. And then this big agent, Chris Albrecht, who went on to start HBO, who was kind of representing me, um, felt all the pressure. So it just... You know what I think? I think you came from chaos. I came? You came from chaos, from a chaotic home. And you came from chaos and then you were thrown into... The world of of people who who didn't come from chaos and were expected to act like them, maybe. But, you, you, but the comedy store was chaos, and you know it was, and so was the improv. But you're right. I I think you're right. I think you you're very you're brilliantly insulting. And, and all in all, you yeah. felt look, it's not working out here, and you found a brand new, fresh, clean start. Yeah. There's no internet. Nobody knows you. You go yeah. out to London, mm-hmm. and and all of a sudden you're doing you're living your dream. People love you. You're 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 making. Mm-hmm. You have a career. Mm-hmm. You even found a wife, and mm-hmm. you got a nice house. Mm-hmm. And then what happened? Produced the first high on laughter at the 900 seat Queens Hall, where apparently Robin Williams was in uh, Taming of the Shrew in '67. Mm-hmm. Great venue. The London Palladium, I brought in cameras, I filmed it, got some of it broadcast. I have 15 British and American comedians, including Rick Overton, Paul Provenza, Bobcat Goldthwait, Jim Gaffigan, Zach Galifianakis, Max Alexander, and then British ones, and then, of course, Jerry Lewis. And this is the whole other show. This is the the story that we started the interview with, where you said something happened and changed your entire life. That was right. That's right. So we we built up to this moment. Yes, that's correct. So... So this is the the event that changed everything. Yes. And 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 how did you so so let's backtrack. How did you come to uh to to book Jerry Lewis? That's, right. That's not something that you can easily do, right? Correct. Or even think about doing. So basically I my agenda was I saw that I was helping comics because I was taking comics who were just, you know, drowning in the bottom of a glass at the improv and saying, hey man, I remember you, you're brilliant. Come to England where the audiences will love you. Mm -hmm. And that helped me deal with my emotionality of being, you know, like banned from the improv, for example. And now you're giving back too, which is probably important to you. I think so. I think, well, I mean, I I know that there's a, I have a moral proclivity to keep the books balanced spiritually, Mm -hmm. certainly not financially, if you ask me. so yeah, so I uh, had a Jerry Lewis. So um, I had dealt with some difficult personalities in the, two, the show the previous year in two thousand one with Roseanne Barr in particular, who uh, um, has been a friend on and off. And um, uh, so I had gone through some humiliation mm-hmm. with some people like Spinal Tap, um, those guys. Um, so I've kind of you know. I kind of had developed a little bit of, of protection in that during that year. And the show was getting bigger and bigger. And the idea was that this was the year that I was going to film it. And I was trying to get Comedy Central on the phone, talking to somebody, you know, some mm-hmm. somebody who just never, you know, and then talking to the BBC and talking to Comedy Central over there, which I had a better conversation with, um, frankly. I let word out know in Hollywood that I was producing this show at the London Palladium where the Beatles played for the Queen and I was filming it for television. I don't, I don't have a distribution deal. Mm-hmm. And these are the other two shows and here's video of it and here's reviews of it. And um, they were sending me, faxing me, because at the time, clients like, you know, um, 
you know, make up a name, you know, Joey Pancakes. Who's he? Uh, he's <laughs> on uh, I Am a Flip Flop on Fox. And go, no, we don't even, you know what? At the time, Danny, right? Y- 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 no one in England, no one, no one, not anyone would know who Jay Leno or Dennis Miller was. And I try to explain this to Americans. No internet. Here. Not just that. There was no internet. That's right. That's exactly right. Before then, though, it was like, well, we don't get HBO or NBC in England. Mm-hmm. Why would we know them otherwise? Okay. And it showed me the arrogance, that just unconscious arrogance that a lot of Americans had, like, oh, world famous. Well, it ain't. Mm-hmm. But this is 2002, so the internet was just sort of... Just coming into thing, right. but it wasn't enough. So word had gotten out. And there was this comedian who just recently passed within 30 days of this recording named Max Alexander. Uh So Max was this uh, corpulent comedian whose act was based on being overweight and kind of a loser. And he was very funny. Mm -hmm. And he had parts in uh, uh, all kinds of movies and things. He was in Punchline. He was in Roxanne with Steve Martin. Mm -hmm. He was in this and that. He was very, you know good character actor, really good comic. And he kept he kept hold of my business card. And every time I'd go to out to a comedy club when I come back to America, you know, for like I'm gonna go visit my mom and whoever and just do see my family mm-hmm. for a month. He'd constantly collar me, come up to me and go, What about that show in England? And I go, Well Max, I gave your tape, which I did, to Peter in England. And then I let Peter know just ignore him. Um, but book him if you want, but you know. I didn't think Max brought anything to the table. Mm-hmm. I wanted, I, I had a certain color palette in my head emotionally of how to build the show. And I see comedy as different emotionalities on a color okay, palette. Okay, well, okay. Okay, so I didn't want to book Max. So one day, Max kept collaring me. Here, you know, and one day at the improv, he comes up to me, he's all sweaty and he's like in a trance and he goes, I can get you Jerry Lewis on your show. I'm really good friends with Jerry Lewis. Would you like Jerry Lewis on your show? Mm-hmm. And then I looked at him deep in the eyes and I said, Max, did I ever tell you how funny I think you are? <laughs> the next thing I know, I'm down in Jerry's yacht. <laughs> Channeled that uh, yeah. that guy on the telephones. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Anyway, so you're on Jerry's yacht. Well, before that, Max helps me craft an invite letter, which Max said, you got to offer Jerry an award. Mm-hmm. Go, what are you talking about? I can never get anyone an award. So we thought, what the heck? So the show's called High on Laughter, and I presented him, you know, with the the idea of getting the High on Laughter Award for his accomplishments in comedy, great accomplishments in great comedy, and in on in his char- yacht in, in charity. So where is this yacht? So he, I fax it to him. Okay. Um, and he calls me up. Jerry Lewis calls me up. My phone rings at the condo. He uh-huh. calls me up. It's David Allen Green. He goes, yeah. He goes, it's Jerry Lewis. Jerry, hi. Goes, uh, I want you to come down to my yacht in San Diego and bring a big appetite tomorrow. Okay. And I got his directions, and I, I drove down there and and get to his yacht in San Diego, uh, which was attached to a hotel mm-hmm. and uh, docked moored, I should say, at a hotel. Uh, I think he sold yeah. it. And uh, I walked into this yacht, and there was suddenly a flash of a camera went off in my eyes and it was jerry lewis taking a picture of me and he was sitting behind his computer and it was this big not just big like fat mm-hmm. but his face had jabba the hudded you know his neck had grown out to his shoulders his, i remember seeing those pictures right of him. yeah it was from the pregnison the steroid he had to take because of his pulmonary condition which was given to him by his doctor dr debakey you know from the first heart transplant mm-hmm. and um 
I sat with him in his yacht, no lunch, no food, three hours, no food. He just, well, you want a popsicle? One other popsicle? We just had all these popsicle sticks. Did you tell him you told me to bring a big appetite? Yeah, I think he went, <laughs> yeah, never mind. <laughs> but he had, he basically, first thing he did was, um, well, I mean, I'll, I'll just let you run the interview if you want to ask me any further questions. Okay, well, well first thing he did was what? I, I was listening. Oh, well, I don't know how long you got here. Um, first thing he did was uh, he started handing me chapters, literal papers of his book he's writing about Dean Martin and telling me stories about him and Marilyn Monroe and Peter Lawford and Dean Martin mm -hmm. and Sinatra. And, uh, and, and then he tells me this incredible story about Spielberg and him when he was in Cannes for the premiere screening of E.T., and after the screening, Stephen gets a standing O, and the standing O won't end, and Stephen sees Jerry in the, in the royal box and hands it off to him as if you were the inspiration, and then Jerry bows. Jerry's the right. first thing that Jerry tells me for whatever reason. Because he wants you to know that uh, he yeah. thinks a lot of himself. Basically. <laughs> so, uh, no food, popsicles, and then at some point, he switches the energy switches where he takes over. And he says, all right, if I'm going to do this show, this is what I'm going to need. I'm going to need a 36-piece orchestra, seven people traveling my entourage, staying at the five-star Dorchester Hotel in Park Lane. I need 24-hour limo. I need 24-hour security. And I need a giant video screen and a projector. Uh -huh. And that's just the beginnings. And you said, okay. Of course I did, because I was friggin' hungry. Yeah. And this is one of his, you know. <laughs> he should have fed you. So, yeah. So I, I said, okay, because I knew from my much experience as a... Uh, uh, producer, that if you have something that someone wants, that as long as you don't use the word deal, if you go, okay, all right, I'm, you know, or I'll see what I can do, or sounds good. Uh -huh. And then later, when I got home, I, you know, I did some research on what it would cost. It would be like well over a hundred grand. Couldn't afford it. Didn't know what the broadcast rights, if I was able to sell the show, would bring. This was a charity after all. Uh -huh. Um, uh, I matched and I checked with Peter. You don't need a 36 piece orchestra, 18 is enough. So basically, what I did was <clears throat> one of the people he wanted to bring over, for example, was his orchestra leader, his MD, his musical director. And that each person cost me $16,000. Uh -huh. Okay. That's for first class and Dorchester. Okay. Each person cost me 16 grand. Instead, I found a guy named Gareth Valentine who lived in London who was an orchestra conductor who conducted Jerry himself in a London production, West End production of Damn Yankees. Got him for a thousand pounds. So Jerry was fine with that? No. No, I faxed him all this. I can't do this, but I can do this. And he mm. calls me up and he says, Stephen Allen Green? And I go, yes. And he goes, I'm not doing your show. Okay. So. And then I immediately said, good. Who the hell needs you? Uh -huh. And he laughed. And he laughed. And at that point, I was an alien to him because everyone around him is afraid of him. And I was like, basically, you know, screw you, okay. dude. Okay, so what happened? Well, then then it became a bit of a tug of war and a bit of Svengaliism. And, and you finally negotiated something. And how much did it wind up costing you ultimately to bring him over? It was a lot over? more than that. See, he pulled out of the show. He promised me he'd be part of the publicity for two weeks. He pulled out of the publicity. He had all these last-minute demands. He yelled at me several times. For example, mm -hmm. he would—he was like dealing with Jekyll and Hyde. This, this this little example will give you everything you need to know. He basically said, "You know, Stephen, um, 
I can't do any PR right now, but after the telethon, I'll be there for you for two weeks. And by the way, uh, when Dean Martin and I once did a charity gig that wasn't very well promoted, the producers asked for our expense money back, you know, like for the orchestra and the hotel. You're not going to do that, are you? Go, of course not, Jerry. I wouldn't do that. Well, anyway, I'll be there for you. And then when press came around, I needed him for just an hour and a half on the phone. And he said, I'm not doing any press. And I go, Jerry. Meanwhile, in London, they <laughs> thought I was bringing over Jerry Lee Lewis. They had never heard of Jerry Lewis, not right. my generation. So anyway, he played you. Yes, sir. And you let yourself get played because you were starstruck by him or what? I... Uh, I felt bad for an old man who was in tears half the time with me about his life and being overweight and not known. Well, why would you feel bad for Jerry Lewis? He was living in an unappreciated world. He didn't feel appreciated. And he was an old guy. He manipulated you. He did. I didn't realize it at the time, did I? You were trying to please your dad, like your dad said, you got to make it well before I die and Listen, all that stuff. Jerry was of my dad's generation. My dad knew Lee Salters and met Sinatra, and Jerry and Sinatra, although Sinatra hated Jerry, it was of the same group. And absolutely, pleasing Jerry was pleasing my dead father, totally 100%. Okay, so you went all in. I went and all in, but I tried to do the best I can. Now, here's something that happened. So at one point, uh, Jerry pulled out of the show two or three times, pulls out again after refusing to do the press. Uh -huh. And meanwhile, my press agent that I'd hired in London, who didn't know who Jerry Lewis was at the beginning, now saying we've got all these invites. If Jerry doesn't do press, I'm sunk. Uh -huh. And so Lee Salters, the press agent who my dad knew who handled Sinatra and Michael Jackson and other people, mm -hmm. um, said, ask Jerry why he's not doing the show. Tell him you're holding a press conference in London. You want to know why? And I said, brilliant. And I called up Max. I was dealing with a two-headed snake, Danny. This is what I'm trying to get uh -huh. across to you. It wasn't just dealing with Jerry Lewis, Jekyll and Hyde. He was dealing with a two-headed snake. Max was a snake. He's just dead. He's passed. I'm sorry, Elaine Boozler. I'm sorry, people who like Max. He was a snake. And Max cost me my home, literally, in London. So I'm not glad he's dead, but he was a snake. And now so he's what a happened? Snake. What did he do? So I called up Max, and I said, Max, I could sue both of you, but I won't. Tell Jerry I'm holding a press conference tomorrow and I want to know why he's not doing my show. Click. 30 seconds, watch going by very quickly on that little animation. Ring, uh -huh. ring, ring. Hello? Steven, this is Jerry. Hey, listen, let's not sue each other. Let's be friends. Come on. Let's work this out, my friend. And we did. And he Svengalled me right back into his web because then when he arrives in London, guess what? He talked about this orchestra and this music, we talked about the songs. I put out 25 grand for rehearsal and performance of the orchestra. He doesn't bring his music. I said, Jerry, it was like Sunday. Uh -huh. And Jerry, what do we do? We don't have any music. And he yells at me in front of everybody. He yells at me. He goes, I've been in showbiz 50 years. I'll give you a show and you'll like it. Uh -huh. And there's like E.F. Hutton commercial, everything Wait a minute. Stops. What was his answer to why you won't do the press? Oh, back there. His answer was basically... You know, he called me back and charmed me until I basically kind of forgot about the press and realized, you know, I had, what I had done was I had gotten timeouts, full page ads, four weeks running, a month promoting mm -hmm. the show. Jackie Mason himself warned me, he goes, what do you do with Jerry Lewis? What are you crazy? You get run for your, run for your life now, you know, and I, <laughs> I can handle this. Or what are you talking about? He's great. I wasn't, you know, it wasn't like I was abused and didn't recognize it. You recognized it, but you took it because it was Jerry Lewis and you wanted to please him and blah, blah, blah. So he comes over. Yep. You've invested all your money yep. into this. 
Yep. And then what happens? Well, he doesn't bring the music. So I ask him about that. He screams for everybody. And then uh, then he locks them. So showtime. Uh-huh. We got an orchestra with no music. Showtime. He locks himself in the big dressing room at the London Palladium. He asked me to hire bodyguards, which I did, which cost me $1,000 a day for four days, two of them, which were also his drivers. So while Jerry is locked in the dressing room with the bodyguards in my employ telling me, I'm sorry, sir, you're not allowed back here. Mm-hmm. Daniel Kitson goes out on stage in the middle of the show. This is after seeing um, all these great comedians. There's still more to come. Uh-huh. And Daniel Kitson's opening line is, it's always been a dream of mine to play a third full palladium to people who are here to who have come to see a dying man. Mm-hmm. Whoa. That got in Jerry's head. Of course. Yeah. And it went, we weren't sure, but we knew it. And uh, so then we go back to the show. We, Bobcat Goldthwait, Rick Overton, Tony V actually ended up replacing Jerry. But it comes time to um, bring out Jerry Lewis. I get word from Peter, who's my showrunner. Jerry won't come out of the theater until I, Stephen Allen Green, leave the theater. So I hid in the back wings, in the front wings in the theater. And I saw this incredible thing. So the, his, he did bring his tapes. And these, you, if you imagine Jerry Lewis from 50 years ago, young, thin, on television, in the movies, he brought all these clips across this massive Palladium stage. The audience who's there knew who he was, was the excitement was there. And then just down across this very long stage, I see a silhouette of Jerry Lewis and two, and, and two of his people. And he's looking up at himself from 50 years ago and then looking out at the half, I think it was half-filled audience. And he falls right over and collapses. And the film was still running and he's collapsed off stage and only I can see it except other people there. And the film ends and I have to go out on stage at the London Palladium and say, ladies and gentlemen, we've had a bit of a technical technical problem at mm-hmm. my therapist. I wasn't funny about it. I just brought up Tony V, who was Bobcat Goldthwait's friend and who I flew over as well. And then um, you go over to check on Jerry. Well, I was kept away and, and all of his people were crowded around him, as was the suspicious oxygen tank that Jerry had personally demanded that I put on the plane, make sure it was on the plane before he get on the plane. So he staged the whole thing, you think? I know he did. Yeah. And I don't care if he sues me. I know he did. He's the king of the pratfalls. That's the biggest question I got in London, New York, and LA for years and years and years. This is one of the reasons I went I went crazy, was did Jerry Lewis, the king of the pratfalls, fake his collapse? And how it mirrored my farewell performances, my last show. How did you lose so much money if you'd already sold the tickets to everybody in the theater? Well, not everybody in the theater bought tickets. I think we papered the room maybe a third or or a quarter. Uh-huh. And uh, But had he gone out that night, would anything have changed? Yes. If Jerry had done the publicity uh, that, that was all set up, we're talking about the okay. Johnny Vaughn talk show, we're talking about all kinds of things. If he had done the publicity, I believe we would have sold out because I had put all the money in advertising in the Evening Standard and Time uh-huh. Out and radio. And, and I calculated... On paper, that a sold-out show f- would have more than paid for everything, and then the money that was and the charity's price money was already written in. It was always uh-huh. written into the budget. Right. So charity got their money off the top, and then the broadcast rights would have brought more money. As a matter of fact, when I did sell the broadcast rights, I split that money between the charity and the comedian. I didn't take a dime. Okay, so you put all your own money into this thing. Jerry Lewis shows up, doesn't go on stage, fakes some kind of collapse. Doesn't do the publicity. Doesn't do out the, of the publicity. Show four times. And then you wind up having to sell your house because because you put all your money into it? Partially. I had to refinance my house. 
it, the reason I lost my own wasn't just Jerry Lewis. It was my own folly. I made a movie. Um, I went to Europe. But um, it was a big bubble, maybe 150 grand uh, just on, on Jerry's expenses, around 100 grand. Mm -hmm. Production, including publicity. The point is, is that I was trying to create, also trying to create a business that would be annual because I knew the family money was running. I knew that my career kind of leveled and I just wanted to have some sort of sense of security. And this thing kept building, you know, and high so, and laughter, high and laughter. And this ended everything for you. It ended everything. I mean, but it was a few years later. And it also hurt a lot of comedians that I was going to bring over to England as well. As it hurt the charity, so, too. So you say that this event made you go crazy. After I lost my home in August of 09, I came back to L.A. and stayed at my mother's condo in Center City. Mm -hmm. where she was ill and dying. And um, when I, I, I basically, I lost my car. I had a car that I kept there, a little Volkswagen Beetle, which was um, taken by the city of L.A. because of a registration issue and a parking ticket I wasn't aware of. Mm -hmm. And I was stuck on the uh, condo and I couldn't, I didn't know about being in LA without a car. It was way before Uber mm -hmm. and I had just didn't know what to do. And then I'd gone to, the, to try to find some work and I couldn't and we were losing jobs. We were suddenly out of money and I was losing my home and lost my home. And just, you know, I was back and forth during that process. Mm -hmm. And I had some problems in my family and the comedy store told me to go away and we were out of money. And I'm living in a condo with no heat and I'm hungry and I couldn't afford to get, suddenly I went from having a lot of money to, to being stuck. Right. And I called my old therapist up in Beverly Hills for emergency help because my cousin Larry had jumped off a building similar to the one I was stuck in. Mm -hmm. And he sent me an unpaid bill. And that's when I basically, I told my family, I said, look, I'm jumping off this building in four days if someone can't get me some help. Mm -hmm. And, um, I started seeing a therapist twice a week. I rode, they gave me a bicycle. I was riding the bicycle to the therapist. I was holding an umbrella in the rain at one point and holding the bike. And I drove from Century City to Westwood and I started to lose weight. And I started the Laughter Foundation because I, I just didn't want any comedian to ever go through what I went through. And What's the Laughter Foundation? Well, the Laughter Foundation is um, a foundation that I started in 2010. Um, we became incorporated in 14, and we're right now just about about to get our tax-free status. Basically, it was the idea was it was going to be for health insurance for comedians. Mm -hmm. uh, that's when the Hollywood Bowl and had Roseanne and all these people. Um, but we have two things. We have something called the Heckler Fund, which is financial emergencies for comedians. And we saved single mom and comedian from eviction by an online campaign. We've housed and fed comedians. Okay. Quote, unquote, that's me. Sounds, some, you know. Sounds like a very good thing. Thanks. Yeah. But let me ask you this. When you came in here today, you told me, and if you don't mind my saying it, that you're currently homeless yourself. Sort of, yeah. I mean, I am. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm tonight I'm staying at a friend's. And I haven't had, uh, I was, I haven't had an apartment in four months. And I'm constantly very broke. Can this foundation help you? No. Why not? Because... Uh, I mean, the only way it can help me is mm -hmm. if we, we have a ceiling of 22% administration. So that means for every dollar raised, 22 cents goes towards paying for web design, um, paying taxes, paying application fees, paying legal. Sounds zones. too complicated. Well, me. it just means that out of that 22%, maybe about 3% goes to me. Okay. And, and because I'm, 
I've got a lot of attacks from people. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I wear tights. I once got accused of lining my own pockets. I've been homeless and uh, and and mm-hmm. slept in 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 a twenty four hour Starbucks before I took money from the Laughter Foundation. I wouldn't. All right, let's take let's take a pause from the charity and and, yeah. sw- and switch gears here. We have a philosopher for you. Yeah, Alex picked out uh, Franz Kafka to talk about. Do you know anything about Kafka? Um, uh, do I know? About, yeah, Kafka. Of course, I read Metamorphosis. Uh huh. Um, Okay, well, I, I don't know anything about Kafka, so you'll you'll be ahead of the game on this one. Mm. Uh, Alex says, what you have in common is that Stephen had a show called I Eat People Like You for Breakfast. Uh, so I picked a philosopher, he says, of sympathy or lack thereof. Right on. Spot on, Alex. Yeah. Well done. Uh, say, what, what book did you say you read of his? I read The Metamorphosis, or it's called Metamorphosis, where Hans Gregor, is it Hans? No, Franz Gregor wakes up one day and he's a dung beetle. Right, Gregor Samsa. Gregor Samsa. Works as a miserable, works a miserable job. He supports his parents and sisters who are too lazy to work. One day he wakes up and has to become an enormous bug. Yeah. The family is horrified except for his favorite little sister who shows him kindness and feeds him. Which is interesting because it kind of, is going back to uh, where we were in the conversation a few minutes ago when you kind of uh, turned to your family for sympathy and said, I'm going to jump off this building mm-hmm. uh, or, or, or I'll turn into a giant bug. Basically, I would be a bug <laughs> as I splatted. I had fantasies of driving my bicycle off the roof into the pool. It says the rest of the family plots to get rid of Gregor, not just because he is a monster, but because now cannot work and is a financial burden. Which is possibly like how, me too. how you were when you lost when you lost your I crackers. I became suddenly a burden to everyone, which an actual burden. Before I had loads of money, and I'd see a comic who'd be struggling, and I'd give them five hundred bucks. I wasn't handing it out nightly, mm-hmm. but um, I let someone stay in my flat in my condo, and you know, and and brought them to London at my expense. Yeah, I helped others. You went from giving to taking. As Gregor becomes more and more bug-like, even his sister is disgusted by him, and he is completely isolated. Yeah, she won't talk to me anymore. Oh, my yeah? Sister, no, my sister hasn't talked to anyone in the family since my mother died. The actress, Barbara Gruen. Hmm. Uh, Kafka is saying there is a limit to sympathy. We can pretend we have infinite kindness, but really we only have as much as is in our comfort zone. We cannot mm-hmm. truly feel the pain of others as much as our own. So we will always prioritize ourselves over them. Very true, if I can comment on this. I remember seeing that, you know, friends of mine, this was the early days of Facebook, were like reacting to the crash, financial crash, and saying things like, oh, we're so upset because we have to sell our second summer vacation home. And I had no money to eat. And, you know, we, we just... You, you know, it's very hard to ex- get other people. Go on. So it was very isolating. Totally, yeah. Uh, not only does Gregor's family reject him because of his change, they were already mistreating him because they didn't want to work. We are not evil, but nature is inherently selfish, and we are part of it. We all have fantasies that we would care for our brother if he were a disgusting bug monster, but really, there's a limit on how much we can care. Sure. You you got to understand. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, I'm walking along the street and somebody asking me for a dollar and I may only have 10 and I have that, you know, I've got to use four of it for gas and six of it for food. And so I can't give you a dollar. Mm-hmm. You're not going to explain that to him. I may seem callous, but I do think 
from what I had to experience and where I had to reach in to help others um, and myself, basically, to help myself back out from being thrown off the boat, uh, we, uh, I think it's incorrect in the sense that we can change what we do. We can reconsider our thoughts. Um, all right. Here's a paragraph from Kafka, and feel free, and I encourage you to interrupt me whenever something speaks to you or if you have a thought okay. on it. When you look at me, what do you know of my griefs, and what do I know of yours? If I cast myself down before you and weep and tell you, what more would you know about me than you know about hell when somebody tells you that it is hot and dreadful? For that reason, we human beings ought to stand before one another as reverently, as reflectively, as lovingly as we would before the entrance to hell. I like it. I could relate to it. And that is that I did have to learn something. And what I learned uh, was that at, you can't seek help from anyone on that basis. You have to present yourself. You can't, I can't, in other words, if I were starving, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call you up and say, Danny, thanks for letting me on your podcast. I had a great time the other day. Listen, um, I am, I'm really, I'm, I haven't eaten in days and I don't know what I'm going to do and I don't know who to call. And I remember you had a, a frozen dinner and I'm just really sorry, Danny. And I, you know, I wouldn't do that to you. Because I wouldn't do it to myself. It wouldn't be effective. It would leave a stain. It's just not right. Why should I make your life difficult? Because mine is. Mm -hmm. So if I would then start to think of a creative way, like, you know, hey, Danny, I really enjoyed your podcast. You had mentioned you wanted to write a book, which you didn't. I'm just saying this is mm -hmm. a scenario. Well, I happen to, I could show you a bunch of contracts I've had for writing, ghostwriting people's books. I'm really good at it. If you'd like to talk about it, I would love to. If you can do it tonight, be great, because I'm kind of up against it, mm -hmm. is a phrase we use in England, being we're just about to be broke. Mm -hmm. And then you'd get the wink, wink, and we'd meet. But I would save you the contamination of the emotionality. And I think that I didn't know that. I think back then, because my mother was like this, is that she would just pour it all over you in like hot oil, and you just have to deal with it somehow and mm -hmm. make people crazy. Sorry, I'm going to bring it back to Kafka. We always yeah. end the show with a few quotes, and I yeah. always ask the guest to read the quotes. Yeah. Uh, would you do us the honor? I'd be most honored to. So there's three quotes. I'll read them. Okay, first one. <clears throat> In the fight between you and the world, back the world. I like it. What does it mean? I think what it means is that you have to trust the world. Why would you be fighting with the world unless you believed in the world? And that you're just one piece. The world's more important than us. And without the world, we don't exist. So we have to collaborate. I think that's what it's saying. I saw it differently. I saw it as like, sometimes I feel like I'm in a fight with the world and maybe it's my fault. Maybe I'm not putting enough blame on myself. I like that. That I've always gotten breakthroughs on that. That's very insightful. I, can we edit it so, it's like I said, so I said that? <laughs> All right, we have one more quote left. Okay. Um, you want to give it? Yeah, okay, let me read on. it. Uh, my guiding principle is this. Guilt is never to be doubted. Uh, interesting. I know exactly what this means. Uh -huh. um, this is actually, in a way, uh, is kind of part democratic, but also I think it's Kafka's way of secretly postulating or proving the existence of God, okay? Because we're all part of something. We're all involved. There's a, someone told me this, uh, I used to see Al Pacino on the street in New York uh, when he was filming, especially, and uh, there was a story of a guy who sees him on the street and says, 
you know, hey, Al, I saw, I saw you in a restaurant. I know what you did last night. Hey, Al, I saw you in a restaurant. I know you did last night. And Al goes, we're all guilty. <laughs> Hoo-ha. I'm telling you, we're guilty. Um, who said almost like, almost like, ha-cha-cha-cha, it's Al Pacino meets Jimmy Durante. Um, right. But uh, no one's innocent. Right. And, um, uh, you know, it's the funny thing about life is that, you know, look, you and I are sitting here, a couple of, you know, a couple of launsmen, a couple of, you know, young men having a great fun conversation. A lot of people would be listening to the conversation. But right now, if we went out on the street, I'm sure there is somebody who could use our help for a meal. You know, why aren't we doing that right now? Why aren't we all in an emergency state to help everyone else on the planet? Because mm. we have to live our lives. And that's where the choice comes in. I say, and this is my philosophy, is that there's a lot more magic and a lot more sense to the world and to the universe than we actually realize. And that great insight into ourselves comes in recognizing that. Oh, that's a nice, that's a nice uh, uh, feel good, feel good quote from Stephen Allen Green. Yes. <laughs> to yeah. Yeah. You know? But true, but it's sometimes, but here's the thing. How many things do we already make a bargain with God or the spirit or ourselves that we're going to feel guilty when we do it anyway? I'm going to get drunk on Friday night. I'm going to try to sleep with this woman. Mm -hmm. You know, these are things I know I'm going to feel guilty, but when I'm going to do it anyway. But what about in your whole story? We've, you know, your story has got a lot of tragedy in it, of course. Yes. Uh, what would comedy uh, but, be without but, tragedy? But what, but what part did you play in all of that? Exactly. Well, that's, that's the lesson that I learned. I think there was a bit... There was a, you know, there certainly was a bit of tarnish on my ego after this whole thing. I mean, here's the point. The point is, is that I had to look at the whole Jerry Lewis thing and actually say, did I, Stephen Allen Green, a comedian over 30 years, ever walk off stage, ever yell at an audience, ever get angry at a club owner, ever act like a big baby and a prick? Yeah. Yes. So who was I to judge the great Jerry Lewis? But not just Jerry Lewis, but that's like the micro of this. But what about the macro? What about your whole life that led you to the point where... You know, you're here and you're telling me this incredible story of your life, and, but you're also living out of I, I, different people's couches or well, your I'm car. Not, I'm, I'm, I've got some things in the works. I got a new job. Right. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not trying to diminish all the good yeah. things you have going on. Yeah. I'm just asking you. I mean, why am I here? It's you well. Know. Why did you get to this point? What What about this was all was you, was all your fault? You know. Uh, listen, I made loads of mistakes. You know, loads of mistakes. The last thing I did with the money in London was to make a, a, a film for $40,000. You know, that was my own money. That wasn't Jerry Lewis, you know, but, 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 you know, a part of the problem is just, you know, when you fall off the boat, when you fall overboard, it's hard. You, you're swimming for your life. I've made lots of mistakes in this town since I've been back. Lots of assumptions, whether that job over that company on Wilshire was going to pay enough. Ubering, I thought, would do it, but I didn't realize the car would cost me three. These are like misestimations, like with the movie, but where yeah. where in your own character are there flaws that have led to this? Oh, well, I'm way too optimistic. I'm, I tend, to, I've been accused of this by people who really know me, that I tend to, if I'm producing a show, for example, I tend to think of best case scenarios. Too trusting. No. Like maybe with Jerry Lewis, was there a stipulation oh, on the contract? You could have... He wouldn't do a contract. Uh -huh. and I, so you trusted him. I trust, completely trusted him, but he was a childhood hero come to life. That's mm -hmm. the difference. And 
Um, and, I've then been, come, and then come to death collapse. Nearly. <laughs> nearly. You're stealing my act, but, Jerry. But That's what my else? Act. I mean, you, you said you burned a lot of bridges. They uh, did. What was that? Where did that come from? Stupidity, self-aggrandizement, and um, just being misunderstood. Um, you know, I, I th- always thought that the perfect world is based, whatever world it is, whether it's showbiz or not, that the perfect world is a world based on meritocracy, that we want the best drugs to be the most popular drugs, for medical drugs, that we want the best restaurants and the best comedians to be, you know, but we know how political things are. We know backstabbers, and we know that it's all about luck as well. Most comics who have lots of talent, who haven't made it or have made it and can't remake it, um, there's the age thing you're battling, but there's also the fact that people got their head in the sand about luck. You got to be lucky in this business, not just talented, but you also have to be nice and you also have to be needed. You have to have something that other people want. And the most important thing that I learned through all of this, the the big lesson that I have learned since Jerry Lewis, because the thing that upset me the most was seeing my name on his Wikipedia page when he had a, a medical incident and it links up to the BBC article about me and, and all that. Is that going to be my epitaph? It's the biggest lesson that I learned, Danny, and the biggest thing that will get you through life, no matter what. Two words. Be interesting. That's it? Yeah. Yeah. Just be interesting. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I feel everybody's interesting. Well, everybody is if you examine them properly and you're one of those who can and do. So just be outwardly interesting? Mm, There's a bit of more finesse and there's a bit of science to it. Seems like there's a fine line between that and be eccentric. Well, in England, we have a term, the word mad. If I were to say, if I were to say to a friend of yours, I say, you know, or Kylie, I say, you know, hey, Danny's mad. What's he mad about? They think you're angry, right? Uh-huh. Well, in England, if I were to say Danny's mad, they go, oh, let me meet him. Because they think you're a little eccentric, a little crazy. Right. And it's okay to be that way. Because life is not meant for us mortals to be happy here all mm-hmm. the time without certain amounts of alcohol and laughter. Yeah. Well, I, I wish you the best going forward, Stephen. I Thanks. Really do. I, hope, I hope that these movies take off. That you Thank have. you. I hope that you... You find yourself with the home again, and maybe with Thanks. a wife again, and, and and back on top, back on top in June. I wanna, I wanna see you get back. Yeah, me too. I and, need to. Uh, me too. And just you know, it's hard. I I suffer from depression. I I know where you're coming from. I've had very severe depression. It's it's painful. It's horrible. Uh, I had I had some depression earlier today. I woke up. I I, I went to I go and pray in the morning. Then I w- went to the gym which is usually how I start a really good day, meditation and then physical exercise. And then when I was still depressed, that even got me more depressed. The fact that I was depressed mm-hmm. in that it's scenario cycle, made me more cycle. depressed. Yeah, right. Because it's chemical. And uh, sometimes it's not, but a lot of, sometimes I feel it's spiritual and sometimes I feel it's chemical. And What way is it chemical? The depression? Well, I mean, is it, is it lack of foods? Is it uh, hypoglycemia? Is it medications you're on? No, I'm not on any medications, but it, it could be. Sometimes it's. Sometimes I do realize, oh, I should I should have ate. Maybe that's what it is. Yeah. But sometimes it's. Uh, it's just I don't know. I get a wave of it out of nowhere, and I, yeah. and uh, and it's very very hard to um, to uh, to move forward when you're in those scenarios. Of course, you know? but here's 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 what I have to say about that. For me, 
um, is that, and I can never remember it, but inevitably, in other words, almost always, almost always, almost always after depression, I'll come out with a brilliant idea. Because I am like that scene in Animal House when John Belushi is like, come on, what are we going to do? We're going to, did they give up? You know, we got to, you know, and I always become that guy. And being a writer and having to have gone through the experience of having to put myself as a fictional character in a narrative, a lot of things were true in the movie, but I didn't, you know, we we condensed some things and changed some things, you know, but I could have given myself wings and x-ray vision, you know, didn't. Mm -hmm. But having learned what a narrative and being a character in a narrative, in a narrative myself, I tend to look at my life as a narrative, as a movie. So I, I mean, you know. So where are you in the movie right, right now? now? Where are we? What, what where, where are we at in the movie? I would say right now, we've come out of the second act crisis. And right now I found my character. I found who I really am. And, and who is that? It's a forthright guy that has ideas and vision and tries to make them happen with the cooperative help of, others who are inspired by my ideas who believe in me. The thing that pisses me off, pardon the word, more than anything, are people that either underestimate me or worse, overestimate me. I am me. I don't know what I'm gonna be like when I hit that sound stage as an actor. I don't know what kind of words are gonna look like on the podcast that I have or the words that I write, but I do know this. The most important thing in writing is context. And the most glamorous thing in writing is authenticity. All right, so a couple of things um, I'd like to plug is that I've got a podcast called, um, <laughs> it's called And We'll Be Right Back. And right now it's on SoundCloud, but you should be able to find it at stephenallengreen.com. Plus I do gigs. So I do The Tomorrow Show. I do Roast Battle. Um, that's the best way. Stephen Allen Green, S-T-E-V-E-N-A-L-A-N-Green.com. And check out thelaughterfoundation.org. It's all linked up there. Thank no, you, Danny. No longer the bug, huh? No, no longer the bug. Can I leave you with a bit of humor here? <laughs> May I tell you a joke? Sure. All right, do you know the one about the talking dog? Go ahead. All right, <clears throat> this man sees an ad in the paper for a talking dog for 10 bucks. Shows up at the house. Guy answers. Can I help you? He goes, you get a dog here selling the talks? He goes, yep. You want to sell him for 10 bucks? Yep. Can I see him? He's in the back. Goes out back. There's a dog tied to a tree. Says to the dog, are you the talking dog? Dog says, well, yes, I am. Are you kidding? No, really quite simple. How'd you learn how to talk? You're just the dog. Well, actually, I grew up around very smart children. They go to school and read their books, you see. Then when 9-11 hit, I, well, I was enrolled firstly in, in Cambridge University where I studied uh, international law. Then 9-11 hit and I was embedded in Afghanistan, then Iraq. I worked for the NSA. Then I also worked for Homeland Security. I got tired of snooping on my fellow citizens. So I went into a private detective business, did that for a couple of years, got bored, didn't want to do that. And I thought, you know, what I really want is just to be a dog tied up to a tree. Guy says, that's incredible, right back. He goes, take your time. Goes inside, says to the guy, you got that dog out there, it's incredible. He goes, yep. And he, he talks, he goes, yep. But why do you only want $10 for him? He goes, that dog's a liar. <laughs> Thank you, Danny. <laughs> Thanks, Stephen. Thanks for being here. All right, everybody, that's our show. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks again to Stephen Allen Green. An interesting story to say the least. My album is available, The Nicest Boy in Barcelona on Stand Up Records. Go and pick one up. Amazon, iTunes, StandUpRecords.com. Please leave a nice comment and five stars in our ratings and review section. We could use it. We need to boost up the podcast and the charts, and it's been a minute since somebody posted on there. 
And you can always email me at thecomicalyahoo.com to say hello. I hope you're all doing well. I hope you're having great lives out there and enjoying the podcast. And please, as always, I ask, spread the word. If you like it, post about it on social media or Twitter. I guess that is social media, Twitter or Facebook, whatever it is, however you share information. Thank you very much, everybody. And I will see you next time with another exciting and jam-packed episode of Modern Day Philosophers. Bye-bye.